On May 25, 2011, a 13-year-old boy named Hamza Ali al-Khatib has been missing for nearly a month. His family spent several weeks terrified for him, terrified over where he might be and what's been happening to him. On April 29th, Hamza walked with them in a protest march against the regime's assault on the nearby city of Dara, as well as the murder of protesters across the country. Hamza wasn't normally interested in politics. He liked swimming and raised pigeons as a hobby. But almost everyone from his town had gathered while the regime shelled homes and shot people in Dara. He marched with his family, friends, and other members of his community until they reached Saida, a village halfway between his town and Dara. That's when Syrian soldiers opened fire on them. Some people immediately fell. The rest panicked, and the scene immediately descended into chaos. It was in that chaos that Hamza's family lost sight of him. He was among 51 people from that protest march grabbed off the street by the most notorious branch of the Syrian Mukhabarat. The Air Force intelligence are effectively the Assad regime's Praetorian Guard. A totalitarian state needs a vast surveillance apparatus to smother dissent. But no tyrant worth their salt is going to trust that many people. Bashar al-Assad learned from his father and predecessor, Hafez al-Assad, how to pit different agencies against each other, make them spend half their time spying on each other to ensure they don't plot against the regime at least not successfully. The Air Force Intelligence are the ones who watch the watchers, the ones tasked with the regime's dirtiest and most important jobs. They're granted immunity for all crimes committed while on the job and are widely known for being by far the most brutal torturers in a government that specializes in widespread systematic torture. Everyone in Syria is scared of the Mukhabarat, but even people in the Mukhabarat are scared of the Air Force intelligence. Hamza Ali al-Khatib, along with 51 other people from his town, were abducted by the Air Force intelligence on April 29, 2011. By May 25th, his family is scared to death about what's happened to him. They haven't heard anything, not so much as a phone call or a letter informing them that their son has been detained. They only know he was taken because someone witnessed it among the pandemonium after the soldiers started shooting. On May 25th, a government vehicle pulls up to their home. Perhaps they thought their prayers had been answered. Hamza had been released. Perhaps they thought their nightmare was finally over and it was going to be okay from here. Perhaps they thought the Assad regime had shown mercy this time. The 13-year-old boy named Hamza Ali al-Khatib did not return home to his family on May 25, 2011. Instead, his family received what was left of him. If you've ever seen a protest take place, you're probably going to know what I'm talking about. When you gather a large enough group of people to voice their support for a specific cause or vent their grievances against something they dislike, 
when you organize a protest at a certain point, it can be difficult for the organizers to keep everyone peaceful. The first time I ever saw a protest was in Washington, D.C. a long time ago. I was walking through Georgetown having a good time, and I saw these people walking up the sidewalk holding up these signs with people's pictures in them, and they were chanting, Free Shane Bauer, and a couple other people's names. I later learned that they were campaigning for the release of three Americans held hostage in Iran at that time. They did eventually get out, thankfully. And that was a great example of a protest. They didn't get the prisoners released overnight, but they did spread awareness of this situation to the general public, including to a tourist from Atlanta, Georgia, who hadn't otherwise heard of the situation. That's a positive example of protesting and the good that it can accomplish. But I remember... And I'm not saying this is a criticism of those people. They were working for a great cause. The first thing that grabbed my attention was their voices. There was a hint of anger, but not hostility. It's more so they were calling attention to a bad thing. And it was a bad thing that those three Americans were being held hostage. I'm saying all this as a preface to the point that people can gather together to protest and almost everybody can show up with the intention of staying completely peaceful. Sometimes you'll just get one random weirdo who either doesn't have as much self-control as everybody else or they were disingenuous about intending to stay peaceful. You can't, nobody can read people's minds. That's one of the difficulties you face when you're somebody who organizes protests. It can be difficult to keep everybody in your group peaceful, even under the best of circumstances. In a country with freedom of speech, where the police are supposed to get involved and intervene if any fights break out, but they're not supposed to arrest or beat up anybody if they say something that the police don't like, even under the best of circumstances, bad things can happen. And then it becomes even more difficult when the police don't do their job properly, when they single out one group for over-policing, when they arrest people on bogus charges, when they beat up people on camera. And then there's counter-protesters exercising their free speech rights, but then they cross the line into issuing threats, blurting out every kind of slur imaginable, or sometimes just going off and wailing on somebody. Protesting is necessary for a healthy democracy. Anybody who's ever participated in a protest can tell you that it is a potentially dangerous activity. But what if you're not just getting yelled at by racists or beaten up and arrested by cops? What if you or anybody else who ventures out into the street to voice your opposition faces being killed with impunity by anyone broadly related to the regime? How do protesters stay peaceful in that situation? This is what protesters in Syria were facing by mid-2011. International media has finally begun paying attention after previously being distracted by events in Egypt and Libya. Consumers of English-language media find themselves enthralled by what Western journalists have dubbed the Arab Spring. I want to be very clear, there are a lot of people from the Middle East who do not like it when you call it the Arab Spring, because there was more than just Arab people participating in the Middle Eastern uprisings in 2011. And it wasn't just the Middle East either, it was a global wave of protests and revolution all over the world. Google Occupy Wall Street. But anyway, this 
outbreak of protests and revolution across the Middle East and North Africa has brought about different results to different countries. Some people in 2011 see it as the beginning of a better future, while others fear it will have the opposite effect. No one understands then that the outcomes will vary from country to country, from peace and relative stability in some places to becoming some of the deadliest war zones in the planet on the other end of the spectrum. No one in 2011 could have predicted what would take place in Syria over the following months or years. Not even Syrians predicted the twists and turns that would occur, or that it would lead to a multi-sided conflict that continues well into 2021. We're going to explore a period of transition in this episode, that of peaceful protest to armed opposition. A majority of protesters will remain peaceful, and a large number of them will either leave Syria or be killed in the near future. A small number of the opposition will change their minds about overthrowing the regime peacefully and come to see the necessity of armed self-defense. An even smaller number will decide that self-defense doesn't go far enough. The only option, in their view, is retaliatory violence against the regime. The regime must no longer be able to torture and slaughter Syrians en masse with impunity making them pay a price for every atrocity perhaps might lead them to reevaluate their modus operandi. Lastly, there are individuals who never believed in peaceful opposition. This small group has been smuggling guns and making plans for months, waiting for the moment when enough people lose faith in peaceful protest to become a potential recruiting pool. Most of these men were recently released from prison by the regime in order for Assad to be able to claim that he is fighting terrorists while murdering protesters, sometimes alongside their entire families. Any hope for peace will have expired by the end of this episode. I need to reiterate a blanket trigger warning going forward. This is going to be our most brutal podcast yet. We're talking about events that sent Syria down a path from which there was no return. There are going to be some extremely disturbing moments in this episode. More disgustingly horrific than anything you'll see, even in a horror film. If anybody listening to this podcast happens to be a parent, this episode will probably give you nightmares. We're going to be talking about massacres, torture, and mutilation, including that of children. You have every right to say that I'm going too far being this explicit. You have every right to think and feel that way. But I'm doing this to provide the context for questions that need to be asked. Don't rush to answer them. Take your time considering them in the face of everything else going on in this episode. Ask yourself right now and once again at the end of this episode. Did some protesters in Syria make the right choice by trying to stay peaceful, even after the regime made it clear that peaceful protesters would be murdered or brutalized in other ways? Did those in the opposition who chose to take up arms make a mistake in abandoning nonviolence? And ultimately, would it have even been possible for the Syrian opposition to remain entirely peaceful or at least unarmed in the face of unimaginable violence committed by the state? This is What Happened to Syria, Episode 11, 
The Last Straw. If you've already listened to our mini-sode, Dara's Devastation, you're probably going to want to skip ahead maybe another 20 minutes or so. Again, if you've listened to the mini-sode, you'll know when you've reached stuff that you haven't heard before. I feel like I've done an inadequate job addressing the Siege of Dara in previous episodes. So I want to lay out some of the facts about the regime's actions while the city was under siege and the impact this had on the people who lived there. Again, we've gone over Dara, the role that it played in the revolution, and the regime's violent response to it. We've gone over it before. We also even interviewed a guy who lived in Dara at the time and participated in protests. I recommend everybody check out the episodes we did with Fadl. We'll put a link in the description. Yeah, Fadl described just some absolutely horrific stuff when he talked about living in the city during the siege. He described seeing bodies in the streets. People weren't allowed to go out or even, even if somebody tried to, to drag one of the, one of the dead bodies to safety, that person would also be shot and their body would also be left in the street for days or weeks. It was only after a long period of state violence that the people who lived in Dara were allowed out of their homes to go buy food or bury the dead. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this broke the people of Dara. It did not. Events in the future are going to completely disprove that notion. One thing people need to understand about Dara is that this is a rural area. These are people who do not like being told what to do by the central authority. Culturally speaking, there are some significant differences between Dara versus a place like Damascus or Aleppo. For example, we had a guest on recently for a bonus episode, Rami Safadi, and he's got a picture in his Twitter profile that was taken in Dara during the Siege of Dara. If you look at the Twitter handle, at Rami Safadi 93, you'll see a picture of this man throwing a rock at a tank. Like the old saying goes, a picture says a thousand words. This old man throws a rock at a tank. The picture captures the rock in midair, hurling towards the tank. The regime sent tanks and soldiers against unarmed civilians. So when people talk about peaceful protesting or rioting, well, what do you do when you've got an armored column coming for you? Can you stay peaceful? They're about to kill your kids. So just to clarify what exactly happened during the siege of Dara, I want to turn to a report written by Human Rights Watch titled, We've never seen such horror. I, would, I just want to skim over some parts with you all before we get on with the episode. On page two of this PDF that you could go find, it, you could easily just Google it. Just Google, we've never seen such horror, Dara, you'll find it. On the seventh page of the PDF file, this is page two of the report. It just lists some of the, uh, the deadliest incidents that took place in a period of months during the spring of 2011. This includes the attack on the Omari Mosque that we talked about in an early episode, which resulted in more than 30 deaths. Also, killings during protests throughout April, 
We mentioned those as well on the show. And there's a lot of smaller scale incidents where people were either protesting and somebody got shot or oftentimes what would happen afterward is that you'd have people attend the funeral for the person who got shot. And sometimes that funeral would become a protest in of itself and more people would get shot. But this was all before the actual siege of Dara, though. The siege of Dara began in late April. Before that, there was this weird period where... The regime kind of gave up on Dara, but at the same time, they were also periodically killing people from a distance. In late April, they gave up on that. They just went full bore. We're going to slaughter the opposition. Human Rights Watch describes in their report, quote, On April 23, 2011, security forces fired on funeral processions in Barza, Duma, Isra, killing at least 12 mourners, unquote. Okay, they're not just specifically talking about Dara, they're talking about multiple places across Syria, but Dara is the epicenter of the killing. Now back to the quote. Quote, As protests continued, security forces launched large-scale military operations on towns and neighborhoods identified as hubs of protests. On April 25th, security forces moved into the city of Dara using military vehicles, including numerous tanks and armored personnel carriers, under a cover of heavy gunfire that lasted unabated for about 16 hours. The security forces occupied all neighborhoods in Dara, imposed checkpoints, and placed snipers on the roofs of buildings in many parts of the city. They imposed a siege on the city, cut off electricity and all means of communications, and prevented any movement by opening fire on anyone who tried to leave their house. Once they had established full control of the city, the security forces then proceeded to arrest hundreds of men from their homes. This pattern would be repeated in a number of places, with varying degrees of military involvement. Security forces surrounded Duma, a suburb of Damascus that was the scene of large anti-government protests, in the early hours of April 25th, deployed a heavy security presence in each neighborhood, set up checkpoints, and proceeded to raid homes, arresting dozens of men. Unquote. There were also numerous cases of women and children being abused during these night raids. I'm just going to skip ahead a little further in the document. Quote, in some cases, the security forces resorted to detaining relatives and even neighbors of government critics in an effort to obtain information on their whereabouts or force them to stop their activism. For example, on May 11th, security forces detained Wael Hamadeh, a political activist and husband of prominent rights advocate Razan Zaituna from his office. The security forces had gone to the couple's home on April 30th searching for them but detained instead Hamadeh's younger brother, Abdel Rahman, 20 years old at the time, when they could not find them. Unquote. That was We've Never Seen Such Horror from Human Rights Watch. You can easily find this PDF file just by Googling the title. There's another passage in this report that I think also does a really great job describing how the state violence in Dara played out and evolved over time. From the end of March, witnesses consistently reported the presence of snipers on government buildings near the protests who targeted and killed many of the protesters. Many of the victims, as described by witnesses to Human Rights Watch and pictured on scores of cell phone videos smuggled out of Dara, sustained head, neck, and chest wounds, suggesting they were deliberately targeted. Other evidence obtained by Human Rights Watch also suggests that the security forces participating in the operations against the protesters in Dara and other cities had received, at least in a number of cases, quote, shoot-to-kill orders from their commanders. Human Rights Watch interviewed a soldier from the Presidential Guard who had deserted 
after the unit was deployed to deal with a demonstration in the city of Harasta on April 18, 2011. The commanders, the soldier said, initially told them that they were being deployed to deal with armed militias, yet what they saw upon arrival to Harasta was a peaceful demonstration. Nonetheless, the soldier said they had received clear orders to shoot, with no conditions or prerequisites. Literally, to load and shoot. Another witness, a resident of Dara, described to Human Rights Watch an episode when together with a group of other protesters, he managed to briefly capture several members of the political security branch of the security services. According to the witness, the captured security men said they, quote, were only following orders and their orders were to kill, not to take prisoners, unquote, and added that they could not surrender to the protesters as they would have been killed by their commanders if they refused to shoot. Security forces who participated in the crackdown in Dara included several army units. Witnesses specifically referred to the 4th Division under the command of Maher al-Assad, President Bashar al-Assad's brother, as well as various branches of Syria's Makabarat, or security services. Witnesses said that the majority of security forces wore green military camouflage, but that they eventually learned how to distinguish members of different branches of the Makabarat by the colored stripes on their uniforms. One witness told Human Rights Watch that members of the military intelligence wear a green stripe, Air Force intelligence wear a white stripe, state security a yellow stripe, and the presidential guard a black stripe, while the political security often wore plain black uniforms. Witnesses also said that in some cases, Macabrat members wore civilian clothes. According to witnesses, some of the security forces in black uniforms were equipped with riot control and other special gear, including bulletproof vests, helmets, shields, and night vision goggles. Snipers also wore black uniforms. Some of the forces were from Dara, while others were brought in from other regions by helicopters and buses. Several witnesses independently told Human Rights Watch that most of the violence was perpetrated by Makabarat forces, while army units on several occasions seemed reluctant to shoot at protesters, who allowed them to cross through checkpoints and, at at least two occasions described in detail to Human Rights Watch, refused orders to shoot and either surrendered to the protesters or handed over their weapons. Unquote. As early as 2011, we're seeing a pattern where the army is less willing to engage in the regime's dirty work than the Makabarat and the people who work for them. And as a result, we're going to see the macabre take a more hands-on role regarding the oppression, the massacres, everything associated with the regime's barbaric actions during the war. While the army kind of takes a backseat role after weeks of being shot at, sometimes being shelled by tanks, some people in Dara did finally get fed up and gave up on remaining peaceful. The report by Human Rights Watch, We've Never Seen Such Horror, has a segment describing exactly this. Quote, Several witnesses interviewed by Human Rights Watch also said that protesters had killed members of security forces. One witness said that on one occasion, he could not remember the date of the incident. After snipers on rooftops killed several protesters, people waited until the snipers ran out of ammunition and then ran up to the roofs and threw several snipers off the buildings. Another witness said on April 22nd, protesters in Nawa, a town west of Dara, 
marched toward the political security office and demanded the release of two detainees who had been taken by the security forces from the hospital, unquote. We're going to have a lot more to say about people being taken from hospitals by the security forces very soon. Now back to the quote. Quote, The witness, Saleh, not his real name, said that the protesters were waving olive branches, and a tribal leader pleaded with the political security to release the wounded men. Instead, 15 political security agents opened fire at the crowd, killing at least four people and wounding another eight. Saleh said that the protesters, who were more than a thousand people, had seven shotguns among them, which they fired. But mostly they just kept retreating and coming back, hoping that the security forces would run out of ammunition, unquote. So this is not an even fight. Okay, it might sound like the protesters have the upper hand when they corner a sniper in a building. Yeah, sure, but that's when they get up close to the sniper. Before that, barring running out of bullets, the sniper has free reign to kill as many of them as he wants to from a distance. And in the case of some, well, I know this might sound disrespectful, but I, th I think this will help Americans understand what's going on. When these rural folk go to meet with the, the secret police, this isn't an even shootout. This is not an even fight. You've got the macabre spraying at these people with AK-47s, while a few of them, seven shotguns in total, occasionally fire birdshot at them. I think this is why a lot of Syrians push back when they hear people who aren't from Syria refer to this as the Syrian Civil War. At least in 2011, it is still the Syrian Revolution. This situation is not yet what people think of when they say the words Syrian Civil War. You don't have rebels and or jihadists backed by a variety of nation states with heavy weaponry going up against the government backed by Russia. We're not there yet. This is a totalitarian regime trying to impose an iron fist on a rural community, and this rural community that's used to having relative autonomy isn't going to put up with it, especially, especially after those kids got kidnapped and tortured by the former provincial governor. Now, regarding the, the mention of people being taken from the hospital by the security forces, this was happening all over Syria as early as the spring of 2011. These hospitals, for the most part, were run by the government. When people would show up with gunshot wounds right after security forces had been shooting at protesters, people would look at them and the natural assumption was that if this person has a gunshot wound, they got to be a protester. So whether it was willingly or unwillingly, the hospitals ended up handing over these people to the macabre. These people oftentimes needed to be in the ER or the ICU with grievous injuries. Instead, they're handed over to people who will torture them. In addition to being shot in the streets, you could also just get picked up and never seen again, dragged off to the most horrible prison imaginable. No, it's worse than you can imagine. And then being tortured there for months or years, and you'll probably die as a result of the torture. I mean, we throw around the word torture to describe stuff done by a lot of countries, but as we've gone over in other episodes, torture in Syria is unique. And sometimes if you survive being shot in the streets, being handed over by your doctors to people who torture you, and then you don't die from the torture, you might end up in a mass execution. That's the kind of risks that protesters in Syria faced in 2011. The report, We've Never Seen Such Horror by Human Rights Watch, has a very detailed and 
frankly, graphic segment describing exactly this. Quote, two witnesses independently reported to Human Rights Watch a case of an extrajudicial execution of detainees on May 1st, 2011 at the ad hoc detention facility at the football field in Dara. One of the witnesses, Ali, said, We were brought into the football field where I managed to take my blindfold off. There were about 2,000 detainees there. They brought me there around 6 a.m., and several hours later, the guards went around the field, randomly picking some detainees. I counted them. They picked 26 people, all young, physically fit men. As they picked them, they would say, We found weapons on you. I knew one man. His name is Talib. His wife is from our neighborhood. They lined him up in one line, facing him away from us, from where I was standing. Six or seven soldiers were in front of us, some two meters away, and the selected detainees were in front of the soldiers, facing away ten meters in front of the soldiers. They were all blinded and handcuffed. The soldiers had Kalashnikov rifles. One of the soldiers, I think he was an officer, I don't know for sure, raised his hand and waved and they fired, without saying anything. It was automatic gunfire, and the 26 men immediately fell on the ground. Everybody was too scared to even move, let alone say anything. Many people were blindfolded and couldn't see what had happened. The soldiers picked up the bodies and moved them into a military truck. These are Russian military trucks that look like big Land Rovers. They belong to the military battalion 132. This battalion is stationed in Dara not far from the place where I live, so I've seen them before. They brought three of these trucks and loaded all the bodies on them and drove away. Ali said he did not know what had happened to the other bodies, but Taleb's body was never returned to the family, and Taleb's wife did not know what had happened to him, as he and other witnesses were too scared to tell anyone about what they saw. Another witness, Hussein, interviewed independently, provided a similar account to Human Rights Watch. He said, They brought me to the football field at around 9 a.m. I was blindfolded and handcuffed but could feel and hear that there were lots of people there already. About 50 minutes later, I was standing with my face to the wall and eventually managed to push my blindfold a little bit up by rubbing my forehead against the wall. I could see by then the field by turning my head back and forth. There were more than 1,500 people there. I saw the soldiers leading away a group of about 20 men, I couldn't tell exactly how many, at gunpoint. They took them to the side about 50 meters from where I was standing. I couldn't see much, but less than 15 minutes later, I heard automatic gunfire and screams. I knew immediately that this group was killed. I was convinced we would be next. We were too scared to even whisper. Then the soldiers started screaming at us, saying, Dogs, you want freedom? You'll have it. They pointed their guns at us loading and unloading them, saying, you are sentenced to death by gunfire. They didn't mention the guys that were just killed, but it was clear. I was convinced they would shoot us right there. I didn't see what happened to the bodies. I didn't dare to turn my head anymore. Human Rights Watch has not been able to further corroborate these accounts. However, the detailed information provided by two independent witnesses and the fact that other parts of their statements concerning their detention in the military intelligence facility in Dara and then in Damascus were fully corroborated by other detainees held in these facilities, supporting the credibility of the allegations. 
A number of Dara residents and two other Syrian activists interviewed by Human Rights Watch referred to the existence of mass graves in Dara. The limited information available to Human Rights Watch is not sufficient to determine whether the mass graves are connected to the executions. The discovery of bodies in a shallow, unmarked grave in the Bahar area, around 200 meters from the southern cemetery of Dara, in an area known locally as Tal at Muhammad Asari, was widely reported on May 16, 2011 after video footage was posted on YouTube showing a number of men pulling dead bodies from the ground. The footage shows earth-moving machinery with Dara license plate number 977149 assisting in the digging. A Dara resident of the Apazade family, currently in another Arab country, told Human Rights Watch that at least seven bodies were found and that five of the bodies were identified as members of the Abizade family, including 62-year-old Abdullah Abdulaziz Abizade and his four grown-up sons, Samir, Samer, Mohammed, and Suleiman. The other two bodies had not been identified but were of a woman and a girl, the source said. He had received the footage from a close friend in Dara and had helped post the footage on YouTube. He said, On May 15th, a Dara man informed a number of local residents that a strong smell emanated from a patch of land around 200 meters from the Bahar Cemetery. The next day, a group of young men, including my cousin, went to the spot and found the bodies close to the surface. They informed the local authorities, who dispatched some people to dig them up. One of the witnesses told Human Rights Watch that on the day when the grave was discovered, he was in the hospital and saw security personnel bringing in nine bodies in sacks. Five of the bodies, he said, were soon identified by relatives as members of the Abizade family. The witness happened to know two of the sons, while the others remained unidentified. Unquote. That was We've Never Seen Such Horror by Human Rights Watch. Dara was put under a brutal siege that prevented supplies from getting in or information from getting out. And we are going to see many, many cities in Syria suffer a similar fate in the years to come. Now let's zoom in a little bit on the people who are participating in the Syrian revolution. Dr. Samir N. Aboud writes in his book, Syria, quote, At least five distinct social groupings took part in the early protests and formed dense social networks that sustained mobilization. First, there were secular, educated, urban middle classes, mostly young people who were professionals or were involved in cultural activities. They were mostly university-educated and came from urban or semi-urban centers, and had few political linkages to the exiled opposition or domestic political activists who made up the pre-uprising opposition. Second, you have tribes, or kinship-based networks, which are mostly concentrated in socially economically deprived areas, and had borne the brunt of years of drought and agricultural decline. Tribal leaders were instrumental in recruiting volunteers and protesters in the early stages of the uprising who could mobilize members based on existing socioeconomic grievances and historical exclusion from Ba'ath Party power. There has been no discernible political strategy from the tribes during the uprising, with some pledging allegiance to the opposition and others to the regime. 
The tribes thus seem more motivated by the specific politics of the moment than any other core political program. Third, you have political Islamists. This group can be considered to be adherents of political Islam. Their affiliations and allegiances, however, are very diverse and not confined to the main Syrian Islamist party, the Muslim Brotherhood. These are typically supporters of particular religious sheikhs who supported the uprising or were compelled to activism and protest by their religious beliefs. Fourth, you have political activists. These are mostly intellectuals, professionals, or business people. Lastly, you have the unemployed, marginalized, and urban subalterns. Unemployment and informality were key features of the Syrian economy before the uprising. Public sector opportunities effectively ceased, agricultural production, a main source of employment, plummeted, and the private sector was unable to provide jobs for the hundreds of thousands of Syrians entering the workforce each year. Paradoxically, many Syrians in this grouping were also drawn into the Shabiha and other paramilitary groups, unquote. That is quite paradoxical. You've got people who are protesting because they don't have jobs, and meanwhile, you've got people from the same socioeconomic status joining the militias, shooting the first group of people. These people protesting on the ground in Syria, they didn't have very much of a connection with the nascent interim government that's forming in Turkey at this time. But even if the Syrian National Council could have somehow coordinated with protesters in Syria, it's hard to say what would have resulted from it. Given the fact that the SNC was, as the kids call it today, kind of a hot mess. Dr. Samir Anaboud writes in his book, Syria, quote, The Syrian National Council was the first coalition of the political opposition formed after the uprising and represented a serious, albeit flawed, attempt at organizing the political energy of the uprising into a coherent voice. The SNC was comprised entirely of parties and political currents outside of Syria, which included the Muslim Brotherhood, the Damascus Declaration, the National Bloc, the Kurdish Bloc, the Assyrian bloc, and independence. Despite the common goal of removing Bashar al-Assad from power, the SNC was fraught with internal divisions from the outset, and was never able to develop into a serious and legitimate alternative to the regime. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir Anaboud writing in his book, Syria. It's safe to say that at this point, things are not going well for anybody. That's true for both the Syrian opposition, they're being killed in the streets, and their efforts to organize both locally and internationally are meeting obstacle after obstacle. But also the regime is having a tough time, and I don't, I don't want to sound sympathetic to people who massacre people in the streets. I just want to make it clear to the listeners that at this time, the regime doesn't have the upper hand, or at least they don't think they do. Sure, they outgun the opposition, they don't quite outnumber them. And even though this is a totalitarian regime, there are a lot of contradictory decisions being made by different officials in different departments. Dr. David Lesh writes about this in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, Into May and June 2011, the regime continued to engage in a schizophrenic response to the protests, while continuing to make some concessions and announce reform measures the military and security forces intensified their crackdown, 
in cities across Syria that were hit by demonstrations. To the outside observer, this approach may seem contradictory and indicative of fissures within the ruling elite on how to respond to the crisis. On the other hand, from the perspective of Bashar and his inner circle, it could be seen as two sides of the same coin in the way that came to be expected of the Assad regimes, old and new. It was something of an axiom of power politics, that one offers concessions only from a position of strength, never from a position of weakness. Therefore, while there was a practical side to the Assad reproach, in terms of repressing the unrest, it also clearly indicated that the regime wanted to portray itself only as making concessions and offering reform measures from a position of strength. As such, there were numerous indications that the regime was bunkering down for the long haul, in order to deliver a knockout punch to the opposition, or, at the very least, to wear them down. The regime continued to paint the uprising as a foreign conspiracy tied to Syrian armed gangs, Islamic terrorists, criminals, and thugs. It moved almost entirely from the narrative of armed gangs supported by enemies from the outside with their own pernicious anti-Syrian agendas. Even if the exaggerated claims of government brutality made by the opposition groups and by inadequately informed Western media are filtered out, it is clear that the military and security forces were employing excessive force against protesters, many of whom were completely innocent of anything other than peaceful protest. As a result, Damascus was losing the propaganda war internationally and even domestically, and any pretense of reform or dialogue was seen as disingenuous or simply delaying tactics. David Lesh goes on to write, quote, With this strategy, the regime's enforcer came into his own, Maher al-Assad, the president's younger brother, who headed the Syrian army's elite 4th Armored Division, as well as the Republican Guard. Over the years, he had developed a reputation not wholly undeserved as the tough guy of the regime. Many equated his role with that of Bashar al-Assad's uncle back in the days when he occupied a very similar position under his brother Hafez al-Assad. He it was who led the crushing of the Muslim Brotherhood revolt at Hama in 1982. Such was Maher's reputation that many Syrians who saw videos showing a man taking pot shots at protesters were convinced that the gunman was, in fact, the president's brother. More to the point, it was a reputation that Maher appeared to be in no hurry to deny, whether true or not. His carefully cultivated image was that of someone to be feared. It may be that a kind of Maher al-Assad cult had developed among some of the more extreme security elements, which may have constrained his brother's ability to move against him if necessary, as Bashar's father had moved against his own brother Rifat in 1983. Indeed, there were those inside and outside Syria who believed that the increasing severity of the crackdown indicated that Maher was now the one actually calling the shots. Maybe Maher had pushed aside Bashar, who was lamely offering concessions and reforms and who had stated publicly on several occasions that he had ordered the security and military forces not to fire on civilians, when it was abundantly clear that civilians were still being shot at and killed in increasing numbers. Bashar was not pushed aside. That is just how the Syrian regime under the Assads react to things. When a domestic threat appears, there is a push-button response of quick and ruthless repression, survival instincts. No one really questions it. The macabre and the elite units of the military swing into action. 
It is an institutional, convulsive response to a perceived threat. The real story in all of this would have been if Bashar had not pressed that button. He probably did not fret over it too much once the initial shock of the protests wore off. This is just how things are done. It was business as usual in a Makabarat state, unquote. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, Fall of the House of Assad. David Lesh is an interesting writer. He spent some time living in Syria. He actually had a fairly close relationship with Bashar al-Assad at one point. He was, by some descriptions, rather supportive of Bashar al-Assad until 2011, when these massacres started taking place. As you can see in the book, David Lesh completely re-examined his opinions of Bashar al-Assad and has come out to be very, very critical of the regime. I think it's really useful when looking at, as David Lesh put it, schizophrenic response to the protests. When you look at the concessions here and the massacres there, it's very tempting to look at it the way Lesh describes how you have Bashar al-Assad making concessions, but then his brother must be the one leading the massacres. That's the perception in the public. But as Lesh points out, that's not how this regime works. It's, it never worked that way under Hafez al-Assad, and it never worked that way under Bashar al-Assad. What they are engaging in here is smoke and mirrors. Bashar al-Assad wants to pin all the blame for the violence on his, by many accounts, psychopathic brother, Maher al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad wants to indirectly engage in these massacres and keep his hands clean. This is a pattern we are going to see many, many, many times over the following decade. But we should not fall for it. Bashar al-Assad, at the very least, approved these massacres and the torture, and at the very least, he is liable. One reason in particular why Assad and others in the regime would be really, really scared at this moment is that you're... We're seeing more and more open opposition to the regime in places considered to be regime strongholds. I'm talking about Damascus and Aleppo in particular. These two places throughout the Syrian revolution have been exceptionally dangerous for protesters. You have an exceptionally high number of very, very motivated supporters of the regime. In Damascus, it's because it's the capital city. Logically, you're going to have a higher than average presence of security forces there. So does every country. In Aleppo, you have the commercial center of the city. And this is a country where there's not much of a distinction between the public and private sector. Everybody who's rich in Syria has gotten rich at the consent of the regime. So when people do protest in Aleppo, they find themselves attacked not only by the security forces, not only by the Shabiha militias, but also by militias bankrolled and controlled by business elites. Increasingly, there is going to be a lot of overlap between the Shabiha and these other militias, which will eventually come to be known as the National Defense Forces. For more on protests that were taking place in Aleppo in May to June of 2011, I want to turn now to a quote from Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Again, this is a book full of quotes from Syrians describing what they witnessed and experienced. So in this passage here, Dr. Perlman quotes a former college student from Aleppo named Geith, quote, During the peak of demonstrations at the University of Aleppo, women played a huge role. Women who wore headscarves could hide papers and signs in their long coats because they wouldn't get searched. The male dorms had so many demonstrations 
that the authorities closed them down. Only female dorms remained open, so women took charge of organizing, and they would pass information on to the guys. If the security forces attacked demonstrators, women would stand in the way. At the time, security officers saw touching women as a red line. A lot of women really came to the rescue, unquote. Unfortunately, what we're going to see a lot more of, including in this episode, is that as time goes by, less and less people in the security forces will see that red line. Less and less of them will hesitate to engage in various forms of violence against women in the opposition. One thing that sometimes gets lost when we talk about deadly wars is that not not all of the deaths taking place are happening in the large-scale massacres. You also have small-scale killings here and there, sometimes of a few people, sometimes of just one person. But when you have it going on in various parts of one country every single day, the cumulative total builds up over time, not only in terms of casualty counts, but also in terms of the psychological effect that this exposure to death has to everybody who is witnessing it, everybody who sees somebody get shot and fall down, especially if they know that, especially if they're related to that person. Just to give you a sense of what it was like to live through this, I want to turn next to a paragraph. This is from Qasem Eid's memoir, My Country. Quote, As April turned to May and the protests persisted, the regime grew steadily more brutal. We began to hear very loud, solitary shots, which almost always found their targets, and whose victims usually died immediately from wounds to the head, neck, or chest. They came from snipers, but it was impossible to know if they were aiming at particular people or if the killing was random. Just another act of intimidation. Even the funerals of protesters were not safe. Regime snipers would particularly target the ga those gatherings. Sometimes snipers even shot pallbearers, sending the deceased body tumbling to the ground and adding to the distress of friends and family. Unquote. That was Qasem Eid writing in his memoir, My Country. And that word in particular, distress. The killings, the mass arrests, the torture, this has been going on for months. This has been months of ceaseless distress. We're in late May to early June now, after starting in March. People are at the end of their rope. But even as they find themselves in situations the likes of which they most of them have never seen or experienced before, even as they are reaching their limits... Things just keep on getting worse and worse and worse. The more people try to protest, the more people get killed. The more people try to host dignified funeral services for those killed, then you get even more people killed. The death toll just keeps on rising. We're already well over a thousand people. Now, some people in the opposition did recognize that they needed to try some kind of new approach. What they were doing wasn't working. What a lot of them tried to do was document everything they could, including the regime's crimes, and then smuggle the footage out somehow, either upload it online 
or if you're dealing with situations where the internet had been cut, possibly even smuggling SIM cards out of areas that have been sealed off by the regime. There were many, many people among protesters, perhaps you could even say, for all intents and purposes, a core or a division within the opposition who specialized in recording footage and then getting and then uploading the footage to YouTube or smuggling it out to media networks. And these people oftentimes found themselves in extremely dangerous situations. A lot of them lost their lives or were arrested and were killed under torture. And even the ones who escaped still had to witness, not only witness and experience horrors, but had to keep themselves composed enough to document it. For more on this specifically, I want to read a couple pages out of Rania Abuzaid's book, No Turning Back, where she focuses on somebody in a situation basically like I'm describing. Quote, On May 29th, a foggy Sunday morning, the regime's tanks, military trucks, and armored personnel carriers rumbled into Rastan. Suleiman was in Homs at his sister's house. He woke to his phone ringing. All hell is breaking loose over here, an uncle told him. Don't come back. Stay where you are. Suleiman tried contacting his parents, but he knew he couldn't get through. He dialed and redialed every relative's number he knew. The telephone and internet lines were cut. After several hours of trying, a cousin answered, a lawyer named Samir Tlas. Samir was on a hill east of Rastan. He suggested a rendezvous point, a gas station on the road to Salamia, at the intersection leading to the town of Umm al-Ahmad. He said he had important videos. The spot was flat, brown, agricultural, treeless, nowhere to hide. Suleiman pulled him into the gas station. So did five trucks full of soldiers and four Puego 505s, along with the 504, the cars of choice for the Mahabharat. Paranoia set in. Were they really looking for him? Had they eavesdropped on the call? Were the Mahabharat really that good? I'm done, Suleiman thought. If Samir arrives now, we are both screwed. He considered driving away. It might look suspicious, but then so would loitering. All they had to do was ask for his ID and see that he was from Rastan to haul him in for questioning, especially on that day. Just act normal, he told himself, but he couldn't. He turned the ignition and drove up and down the road. He saw the convoy head out just as Samir arrived. The cousins embraced. Samir slipped a memory card into Suleiman's hand and left. The videos were mainly of injured children in hospital beds. A quiet girl in a pink t-shirt, her head wrapped in bandages. Another child, this one whimpering, her shoulder covered in a cast, a sling around her right arm. They were on their way to the Rawafati school when their bus came under fire sometime between 7 and 7.30 a.m. The driver was shot but survived. A first lieutenant from the Tlas family who is traveling back to his military service, wasn't so lucky. He died, along with a schoolgirl named Hajar al-Khatib, who had turned 11 that day. Hajar's body was released to her father, despite his refusal to sign a paper saying she had been killed by terrorist gangs. Her devastated father said, I told them if that's what they wanted, they could keep her body. On May 31st, the state-owned Tishreen newspaper reported both deaths. 
It said the pair were martyred in an attack by extremist terrorist groups, and that their flag-draped bodies were honored as they left Homs Military Hospital. A few years later, at the opening of Geneva peace talks between the Syrian government and the opposition in exile, the head of the Syrian rebel delegation would begin his speech by recounting the story of Hajar al-Khatib and calling her the first female child martyr. Suleiman watched the videos on Samir's flash drive with horror. Children had been shot. The images provided proof of the security forces' indiscriminate fire. He needed to upload them to SSN, but his sister and Holmes didn't have DSL. He didn't know anyone in the city who did. Anger clouded his judgment. He walked into an internet cafe, handed over his ID, as was obligatory, and started uploading the videos. It was impossibly reckless, but nobody noticed. Luck was on his side. That same desperation and luck drove him to run the gauntlet of checkpoints back to Rastan a week later. He had no idea if his name was on the lists of the wanted. Dressed in a suit and tie, Ray-Bans affixed his clean-shaven face, and driving an expensive car, he figured he didn't look like somebody the low-level loyalist would stop to question. He was right. He wanted to be home to document what was happening, but he had another reason to return. One of his relatives, a 24-year-old first lieutenant named Abdul Razak Tlas, had defected from the army in response to its attack on Rastan. He was one of the first officers to break from the regime, a split steeped in symbolism. He was a relative of former Defense Minister Mustafa Tlas, defecting from Dara, birthplace of the revolution, where he served with Division 5, Brigade 15, Battalion 852. In an emotional statement aired on Al Jazeera on June 7th, Lieutenant Tlas, Lieutenant Tlas said he witnessed officers he named killing peaceful protesters. He sat in what looked like a tribal tent, dressed in battle fatigues and a cap, two yellow stars on each lapel. The honor of Rastan is under attack. Rastan is being destroyed by artillery, mortars, and tanks. Where are you, honorable officers of Rastan? Where are you? Lieutenant Tlas called on them and others to defect. Where are your consciences? You did not join the army to protect the Assads. Unquote. That was Rania Abu Zaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. There's a lot to unpack out of that quote. So Suleiman, the guy mentioned in this quote, he is a member of the Tlas family. I've talked at length about Manaf and Mustafa Tlas. They were high up guys in the Assad regime. The family has profited as a result. Suleiman grew up privileged. You could probably tell from the description of his clothes and his car. But in 2011, as Abu Zaid documents in her book, he underwent a change as the revolution took place. And he basically used his status to kind of work as an undercover operative for the revolution. And he, like so many others, he had to see videos of children who had been shot. In this case, it looks like these were kids who had been had been killed by accident. I mean, these soldiers are not the most well-trained, and they're being told to shoot to kill at a moment's notice for all kinds of different reasons. Not only are you having protesters being murdered in the streets, you also have people who weren't involved getting hit by stray rounds. And you also have a really interesting development with Suleiman's cousin, Abdul Razak. You have one of the first officers to publicly defect from the regime and call upon others to join the opposition. 
According to Abdul Razak Tlas, this was because of what he was seeing, because of what he and others were being ordered to perpetrate against their fellow citizens. What we're going to see in this episode, and this is not the last time we're going to come to something like this happening, the rise of armed opposition to the Assad regime was not a foreign conspiracy. But we will see later on that there was a little bit of that, less so as a main cause, more so as a opportunistic contributing factor. It's less of a thing now than it will be in future episodes. We're seeing in this episode a lot of things that we're going to keep seeing in future episodes. We're seeing a lot of trends either beginning or at the very least start to or at the very least start to come to the forefront. This is after all season 1 for our show, so we're being introduced to all the main characters. They're all making their glorious or horrific entrances into the world. One of these iconic main features of Syria in the 2010s. One of them is a phenomenon that people start to call field hospitals. As we went over earlier, it got to a point where it was not safe for people in the opposition to go to hospitals, even if they had been shot, even if they had sustained life-threatening injuries. What do you do if you're in that situation? Well, you look around, you try to find any medical professionals willing to work with you, and you set them up in a room somewhere, maybe do the best you can to sterilize it, do whatever you can to make it resemble an emergency room, and these very brave doctors and nurses would volunteer to undertake this extremely difficult task with nowhere near the adequate resources and do it all for free because they believed it was a good cause because they wanted these people who had been shot while protesting, they wanted to give them the medical care that, that they needed. And if these doctors and nurses were caught, they would be killed. They would be tortured to death. So people are already at their limit in Syria. Protesters are reaching their limit when it comes to stress, when it comes to fear, when it comes to anxiety. It's not even safe to go to the hospital, for God's sake. Even the hospital is dangerous. That's terrifying. People are terrified. The state is engaging in state terrorism. And the terrorism is having its effect. People are terrorized. People are terrified. And here's where we get to a point where you immediately can tell whether or not somebody has actually read Machiavelli. There's a quote you often see on usually Facebook or other social media sites where people will say, it's better to be feared than love, unquote, dash Machiavelli. You know, they do that, they share that to sound cool and edgy. You know, I'm a cold-hearted bastard. I'm so strong. Thing is, those people actually never read the book that they're quoting. I've read The Prince by Machiavelli. He talks about whether it's best for a ruler to be loved or to be feared. And what Machiavelli writes is that it is better to be feared than loved because according to this guy writing in the circa 1500s or so, because if people love you, they might choose to help you, but if their feelings change, they might choose to not help you. They might choose to not obey you if you are the ruler. If people fear you, they obey you. But Machiavelli cautions about the worst-case scenario, 
The worst case scenario is not being loved. You know, all these assholes on social media who love to share that quote, it's better to be feared than to be loved. The part they didn't read because they didn't read the damn book is that Machiavelli cautions people against going too far trying to make themselves be feared. The way that he advises a prospective ruler is to do one bad thing or a small number of bad things once or at least within a short span of time of each other. Don't drag it out. Just a quick one and done. And everybody's like, what the hell is that? That instills fear. What does not instill fear is a series of small-scale incidents dragged out over a period of months. That does not make people fear you. That makes people hate you. And according to Machiavelli, the only thing worse than being feared or loved is being hated. Hafez al-Assad followed Machiavelli's example. We see that with the Hama massacre. Bashar al-Assad failed to follow Machiavelli's advice. I don't know whether or not he read the book, but if he did, he didn't comprehend the lessons very well. So gradually, in the spring of 2011, the increasing frequency of small-scale and large, and sometimes even large-scale killings, it's generating fear, but it's also engendering more and more hatred. And by the end of May 2011, we're going to see a huge outpouring of rage when people all over Syria find out what's been done to a 13-year-old boy named Hamza Ali al-Khatib. Malik writes in her book, The Home That Was Our Country, quote, Security forces had arrested Hamza on April 29th in Dara, four days after I had arrived in Damascus, for attending a rally with his family. But no one would hear of it until nearly a month later when Hamza's body was returned. According to activists at the time, it was released to the family on the condition they say nothing. A video, however, was made and circulated, soon reaching global networks like Al Jazeera. The body showed many signs of torture. There were bullet wounds on his arms. He had black eyes, cuts, injuries consistent with electric shock devices, bruises, and whip marks. His neck had been broken and he had been castrated. While American media often sanitize what viewers can see of what has been done to a human body, the same cannot be said for Arab audiences. Images from Iraq and Palestine had not been sanitized for years. And yet what we saw of Hamza, which clearly showed violence done to a Syrian child by the Syrian regime, shocked those who were willing to look. Hamza's father was briefly detained when the video came out. Syrians were put on notice. An expose to be shown on state TV would give us the truth. When it aired, doctors on camera made the case that these injuries were acquired after Hamza's death. 
and certainly not while the regime had him in its custody. The doctor who testified on TV said the marks were not signs of torture, but had been faked by conspirators who wanted to agitate the Syrian people. To allay any doubts, Hamza's father and uncle appeared on state TV in a pre-recorded conversation and said that they trusted Assad, whom they added had pledged to look into the circumstances of Hamza's death. At first I wondered why the regime had bothered with the charade. No one around me seemed to believe that anyone else but the regime had done this to the child, even though some insinuated that he or his parents were at fault for ignoring what they should have known were possible consequences for participating in the rally. But I began to understand that we weren't meant to be convinced. This was how the regime could hide a threat in plain sight. As state TV lingered on the bodily mutilations, speaking calmly about how the wounds were inflicted post-mortem, we were meant to actually look at and commit to memory the damage that can be done to a body, even a, to a child. The message, be grateful this is not your child. It was a master class in how to hear, read, and speak this coded language, the one that exists between dictator and dictated. What happened to Hamza taught me that what many Syrians who were hesitant to confront the regime feared most was not instability, or the Badil, the alternative to the regime, they had, whether consciously or subconsciously, understood that the regime would, like an abusive parent, punish them severely for their misbehavior, as if Syrians demanding reform were just children. Really, the regime had survived for years on an intricate architecture that made children out of adults. To remind anyone getting any ideas to the contrary, the regime began to make corpses out of children, as they did with Hamza, unquote. That was Alia Malek writing in her book, The Home That Was Our Country. I'm just at a, at a loss for words after reading that last quote. I mean, torturing children to death, that's, that's unique in terms of evil throughout world history. That's unusually barbaric. When I started researching all of this stuff, one thing that really confused me was this question. When when did the protesting shift to fighting? When when did the transition take place? When when did the protesting and civil uprising phase as western observers tend to call it? transition into the insurgency or civil war phase. Well, it turns out it really wasn't quite like that. There was not, in fact, a real transition across the country from one stage to another. Different things happened in different places at different times. Dr. Samir Enabud explains this in his book, Syria. Quote, Both nonviolent mobilization and armed insurrection or regime violence have been present since the outset. However, in the initial months after the uprising, when the nonviolent mobilization had proved unable to overthrow the regime, 
and the political pressures brought to bear by external opposition proved futile, many in Syria chose the path of militarization as the option most likely to bring about the regime's overthrow. This was supported materially and encouraged politically by regional powers intent on destabilizing Syria and expanding the battlefield. Thus, the seeds of militarization were planted in the initial stalemate that defined the conflict during 2011, a period in which the internal and external opposition was still in its infancy and had proved unable to bring about an end to the conflict. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir Enabud writing in his book, Syria. Just to put it simply, in one place you're seeing protests, people chanting, holding signs, Sometimes they're being left alone, sometimes they're being shot in the streets, and at that very same moment in a different place, some guys somewhere are smuggling guns across the border and getting ready to start fighting the regime. And that last bit at the end about foreign powers supporting the armed opposition, yeah, that's true, that did happen. That wasn't so much the case in 2011, though. That is something we would start to see more so in 2012, and it would sharply escalate in the years afterward. I mean, nowadays, yeah, it's it has become a proxy war. Back then, though, in 2011, that was not the case. It was not yet really even a civil war at that point. What we're seeing right now is the very beginnings of an insurgency. But even as a small number of Syrians are beginning to take up arms, and planning to take revenge for the months of constant state violence. Hundreds of thousands of people are still convinced that peaceful protest can work. We're about to see the largest protests to take place in Syria thus far, at least the largest ones to happen outside of Dara. Thus far, this episode is largely focused on the Assad regime's brutality, violence, and sometimes just sheer depravity. But everything going forward from here is going to be looking at how different people responded. Friday, June 3rd, 2011, was known among the Syrian opposition as the Friday of Children. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets to protest all over Syria. These included people who hadn't protested before, people who hadn't previously supported the opposition, but were just so disgusted by what they saw when they saw the pictures and videos of Hamza Ali al-Khatib's mutilated corpse. They couldn't take it anymore. They went out into the streets and made their voices heard. In Hama alone, just this one city, about 50,000 people took to the streets to do exactly this. I want to turn now to a couple quotes from Sam Daguerre's book, Assad or We Burn the Country, that do a really great job describing this. Quote, Spring was nearing its end in 2011 when thousands flooded Hama's Aleppo Way. It was the old road to the northern city, the route taken by those escaping death in 1982. This time, the masses moved in the opposite direction, south toward Asi Square and Hama's center. They waved olive branches and palm fronds and held signs calling for the Assad regime's downfall. A long red, white, and black Syrian flag, extending for almost a quarter mile, was held aloft. 
It was emblazoned with these phrases. Hama does not want the army to enter. No to sectarianism. The people want to topple the regime. A shab yurid iskot on the zam. The crowds marched past the Afamia al-Sham Hotel and local Ba'ath Party headquarters, imposing structures erected on the ruins of one of a dozen neighborhoods raised by Hafez al-Assad after the 1982 massacre. The scene of defiant protesters brought tears to the eyes of many Hamwis, especially those with memories of 1982 when at least 10,000 perished and thousands still remained missing. The wounded city was having a cathartic moment, speaking out in great numbers against the regime that had terrorized it three decades earlier, unquote. That was a quote from Assad or We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. Now, Hama, of all places, might actually be the one place in Syria at this point that has suffered more at the hands of the regime than Dara. I mean, at this point, actually, currently at this moment, Dara is the one suffering the most, but just historically speaking, with the Hama massacre in 1982, and then all the brutality taking place in the spring of 2011, the killing and torture of protesters, there's something very significant, at least symbolically, about Hama rising up as the most vocally anti-Assad city, considering what Bashar al-Assad's dad did to Hama decades earlier. I mean, as Sam Daguerre writes in his book, people who are old enough to, to remember the massacre see this happening in 2011, and it brings tears to their eyes. It's also interesting how, also at this point, a lot of the Syrian opposition were still waving the Syrian Arab Republic flag, the, the basically the rip-off of Gamal Abdel Nasser's flag. It's a relic that goes back to the time when Egypt and Syria were a unified nation briefly in the mid-20th century. The opposition, some members of the opposition, as Sam Daguerre wrote, and you can look up pictures of this, they were still waving that flag. Soon, though, there will be a delineation between the regime flag, as a lot of people will call it, versus the opposition flag. What, what happened was they ended up adopting the flag that, that had preceded the regimes. This was a flag that goes back to the 1930s. Instead of the regime's red, white, and black flag with two stars on it, eventually the opposition is going to be more so associated with a green, white, and black flag with three red stars on it. This flag will eventually come to be called either the Syrian Revolution flag or the Free Syrian Army flag. And yeah, we are about to see the beginnings of the Free Syrian Army. Not quite in this episode, but we're getting very, very close. I would say it's most accurate to call it the Free Syria flag. This dichotomy between the supporters of the Assad regime versus what will come to be called Free Syria it is starting to emerge in this specific time period. And eventually, it will result in the creation of two separate Syrian nation-states, almost. Or, okay, nation-state isn't the right word. Two separate Syrian nationalities, to a certain extent. I know it probably sounds weird that I'm going on and on about flags at this moment, but it's very common for when people do see the flag that I'm talking about, they say, Hey, look, it's a FSA flag. Really, that's usually not what people are referring to when they bring that flag to protests or when they put it in their Twitter bios. It's usually a political statement about supporting freedom and democracy in Syria more often than 
supporting the armed groups associated with that flag. Going back to the June 3rd, 2011 protests in Hama, Sam Daguerre writes in his book, Assad Reburn the Country, quote, The large protests that gripped Hama in the waning days of spring 2011 were not only from a brutalized city finally speaking out, but also from many regime opponents like Mazen Darvish and Khaled al-Khani who were desperate to keep the protests peaceful and prevent the country from plunging into extremism and war. It was an attempt to stop the Hama 1982 scenario from repeating itself in almost every rebellious city, town, and village across Syria. Thousands took to the streets of Hama in early June 2011 to say enough death, no more massacres like in 1982. As they tried to traverse the river from Hama's hotter section to Asi Square, they were met with deadly force by regime snipers and gunmen on the street, as well as those posted on the rooftop of the local Ba'ath Party headquarters building. More than 60 people were killed. Most wounds were in the chest and head. Nearly the entire city was on strike for days. Regime forces withdrew to the city's outskirts, fearing the population's wrath. Larger protests followed in mid-June, culminating in the occupation of Asi Square. As thousands poured into the square, large loudspeakers mounted on the back of a truck blared a moving song by an activist from southern Syria that had become the anthem of Syria's revolt. The youth, O oh mother, heard freedom was at the gate, and they went out to chant for it. They struck us, O oh mother, with live bullets. Protesters stayed in the square day and night. In solidarity, restaurant owners distributed free food. The numbers on the street grew day by day. It became a carnival-like atmosphere. They danced a local Hamwi version of Dabke, a traditional Levantine line dance. People were fired up by folksy anti-regime chants performed by a, a local activist and revolutionary singer nicknamed the Kashush, unquote. I believe Samdagir is referring to an individual known as Ibrahim Kashush. We are going to talk about him at length in a future episode. Now we turn back to the quote where Samdagir describes Kashush's song. Quote, We want to remove Bashar with our strong will because Syria wants freedom. Syria wants, shouted Kashush with a raspy voice and rhythmic cadence. Freedom erupted the crowd. Surya Bada, Syria wants, repeated Kashush. Kharaya, freedom, the crowd answered fervently. Protesters declared the city theirs. They set up citizen patrols and checkpoints to protect protesters and warn of any incursion by regime forces. At first, few of those assuming security functions had weapons. They mostly had batons and sticks. Hama's Asi Square became the equivalent of Cairo's Tahrir Square. Similar attempts in Damascus and Homs in April were snuffed out by Bashar with bullets and blood. At the palace in Damascus, Bashar al-Assad was stressed out about the growing protests in Hama and the occupation of Asi Square. 
Manaf Tlos, sidelined by Bashar for being too soft, had nonetheless remained in his position as Republican Guard General and continued to interact with those around Bashar. The president is very disturbed by what's happening at Hama. Why don't you speak with your contacts and see how we can calm things down? A fellow Republican Guard commander urged Manaf. There was little he could do, regardless of his differences with Bashar over the use of force. For protesters in Hama and elsewhere, who were now demanding Bashar's departure more fervently than before, the Tlases were symbols of the regime they loathed. Manaf was told that the Hama protesters were being joined by people from all over central and northern Syria, Aleppo, Homs, and his native Al-Rastan. Bashar had hoped that the sweeping military campaigns, starting with Dara in late April, would have quelled the protests. As concessions, he had pardoned protesters and tasked a committee led by his vice president, Farouk al-Shara, to prepare for a conference with opposition figures to discuss his proposed reforms. But few, if any of them, had sway over the street protests, unquote. That was Sam Daguerre writing in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. The title, by the way, comes from a slogan chanted by supporters of the regime throughout 2011. And that bit at the end about how high-profile Syrian opposition activists sometimes didn't have complete, didn't have much sway over the protests, as Daguerre puts it, that ties in with what we talked about at the beginning, how you've got the Syrian National Conference, you've got this attempt at creating an interim government in exile by, by, mem- by various opposition groups. But they don't really have much contact with the people on the ground because they're not there. They're in exile. The protests in Syria in 2011 were not some foreign conspiracy as they so often get described. This was a grassroots, bottom-up phenomenon. And when people tried, people certainly tried to reach in from the outside and consistently, not only in 2011, but almost consistently throughout the entire decade, every time foreigners try to reach in and steer events one direction or another, they either fail, or it backfires and creates this domino effect where all kinds of unforeseen stuff happens. Now let's zoom in on the protesters and examine what exactly they were doing. We're turning now to a book called Civil War in Syria, written by Adam Boxo, Giles Doronsoro, and Arthur Kuzne. This is a really big, dense academic text. It's not like the it's not like the memoirs I've been quoting extensively in this episode and others. So now I'm gonna take off my storyteller hat, put on my history major hat while quoting this quote. The Syrian opposition quickly learned that borrowing from the Tunisian and Egyptian protesters' repertoire was not feasible. After the fall of the Tunisian and Egyptian regimes, we began to discuss the resources available to us. We knew that the Syrian regime was was much stronger and had formidable security forces, and so we did not do the same as they did in other countries. The occupation of the physical spaces was not a viable strategy due to the violence of the repressive machinery. One such attempt, on Clocktower Square in Homs on April 17th, ended with dozens dead. 
Demonstrate, demonstrators quickly abandoned alternative alternative methods, such as flash demonstrations in the wealthy neighborhoods of the large cities. Initially, their actions were limited to meetings and short marches in a public venue, either mosques, parks, or universities, to the accompaniment of anti-regime slogans. There is limited data regarding the participants. Going by videos posted on YouTube and according to our interviews, the processions were mostly made up by young men. Women also took part, however, in gathering in the center or at the back of the marches, employing their own repertoire, such as throwing rice. In Aleppo, the protesters were mostly from working-class areas, but also came from upper-middle-class neighborhoods to the west. There were Sunni Muslims, as well as Christians and Kurds. In the small towns of the Aleppo governorate, processions were mostly homogenous, made up mostly of Sunni men, but they were socially diverse with farmers, notable with farmers, notables, merchants, and civil servants marching. The modalities of protest were born out of the constraints imposed by the Syrian regime that forced the protesters to limit their risk of arrest. With meetings of more than three individuals being prohibited, unquote, how the hell is that even possible in a country where most married couples have more than that many kids? Now back to the quote. Quote, With meetings of more than three individuals being prohibited, mosques, regardless of religious function, became the starting point for many events since adult men could meet in them, particularly during the Friday sermon. Now they quote a Syrian they interviewed, quote, The first event I participated in started from the mosque of a village close to Aleppo, although the imam was pro-regime, after Friday prayers. The regime was not able to monitor all mosques or souks and the protesters maintained the tactical upper hand by varying the locations. Each of our protests took place in a different venue. The protest lasted only a few minutes before we would disperse, only to regroup elsewhere. Now back to the text. Similarly, risk assessment by the protesters explains how the demonstrations spread throughout different neighborhoods. Mapping the protests with the protesters' hometowns would not necessarily show a correlation, as they would take the police presence into account when choosing a venue or, in some cases, to avoid being recognized by someone familiar. In a city like Aleppo, the risk of arrest drove some people, especially the youth from the most heavily policed neighborhoods, the well-off from the west and the Kurds from the north, to show up in the informal, under-policed Sunni neighborhoods. Now they quote another person they interviewed, quote, People in rich neighborhoods west of Aleppo supported the protesters, but we quickly gave up on the idea of protesting there, explains one protester from the west of the city. These neighborhoods have wider streets and are easier for the police to control. They have a heavier presence where they have their barracks, while the suburbs are less patrolled and people can gather there more easily. The security forces that come from elsewhere don't know these areas so well. Another protester told us, Coming to protest in the east of Aleppo was very dangerous for me. I had to pass through several regime roadblocks with the risk of someone recognizing and arresting me. Once in the popular neighborhoods, I had nowhere to live. I needed to stay several weeks in the homes of revolutionary friends before I could risk traveling back home again. Joining the protesters often meant leaving the family to avoid exposing them to retaliation and then settling in working-class neighborhoods. In the Kurdish cities, such as Afrin or Kobani, and in the Kurdish areas north of Aleppo from September of 2011 on, the PYD suppressed any demonstrations held there. Young Kurdish protesters, therefore, 
traveled into predominantly Arab neighborhoods to take part in the demonstrations there. Then there were the informants. So many were working for the regime that it became difficult to coordinate collective action without the security forces learning of it and making preemptive arrests. This accounts for why, at the start, no organizations such as the unions, associations, and clans were involved or played an important part in the protests. The same was true of well-known personalities. By monitoring the imams and sheikhs, the regime prevented the religious networks from playing a coordinating role as well. Few imams called for protest, although some did join as individuals. In this context, with the security forces monitoring most communications, even the weak ties that can be significant when a protest movement is expanding were rendered useless. The risks of being identified were considerable. Protesters were not able to leverage the part of their social capital essentially consisting of these weak ties. For instance, the president of an association who joined the protesters was careful to resign in early April in order to protect the organization, which therefore survived. Likewise, the director of a small business in Aleppo kept his employees in the dark regarding his activism. An employee of the United Nations Development Program resigned from her post and cut herself off from her colleagues once she was involved in the Damascus protests. I didn't know if my colleagues were for or against the revolution, and I was too afraid of being denounced by them. After the first protests, I quit my job and stopped seeing them. Cecily Book reports the case of a film director who participated anonymously, his face covered, after the failure of the intellectuals' protest movement. The two surest tactics for avoiding arrest were either, were either anonymity or mobilizing strong ties, the latter relying on the solidarity of small groups of friends or family. At the start, as related by a protester, now they quote the protester, quote, Our first demonstrations were spontaneous and often composed of individuals who did not know each other, unquote. Now back to the main text, quote, The need for anonymity limited the protests, especially early on. Some protesters covered their faces to avoid identification. In this respect, the villages on the urban peripheries played an important role in the initial phase. Now they quote another Syrian, quote, Instead of gathering in the inner cities, we started to demonstrate in the villages with our faces covered, unquote. Now back to the main text, quote, in addition, some protesters would participate with family and close friends. They quote the same person again, quote, We were a small group of ten people, friends, and cousins, unquote. That was the academic text Civil War in Syria, written by Adam Boxo, Giles Doran Sorrow, and Arthur Cusney. Now that quote and some others we've looked over, they, they mention frequently the protests and revolutions going on in, in nearby nations, such as Egypt or Tunisia, and to a lesser extent, Libya. It needs to be kept in mind that, at least in the case of Egypt, you know, Syria's next-door neighbor or cousin, depending on who you ask, if, I mean, really, if you look at the history, they're so closely related, you might as well call Egypt and Syria cousins at this point. When Syrians saw Egyptians gather in Tahrir Square in Cairo, they saw people doing the impossible, especially when Hosni Mubarak was toppled shortly thereafter. Now, it didn't quite work out in the long run the way people thought it would, 
But at the time, the common perception was, oh my God, our brothers and sisters in Egypt just successfully overthrew their dictator. We didn't think that could be done, but maybe, just maybe we can do the same in Syria. I want to turn again to another book. This is The Home That Was Our Country by Alia Malik. Going over the role of Tahrir Square in the minds of a lot of people who participated in the protests. Quote, As I settled into Damascus, nearly every day I passed through the city's Tahrir Square. Tahrir means liberation, and the Arab countries are full of liberation plazas, boulevards, and buildings. Though freedom has been in short supply in all of them. Early in the year, Egyptians had electrified the world with their Tahrir Square, filling up all 70,000 square feet of it with thousands of people seeming to speak with one voice. It was already clear, three months after only escalating developments, that there would be no quick and cathartic revolution for Syria like what had appeared to have happened in Egypt. Syria was not going to remake itself in a similar neat 18-day arc, apparently the perfect amount of time to hold the world wrapped without overly taxing short attention spans. Egypt's story had been inspiring, and it was impossible not to cheer on the young, social media-using regular Egyptians who brought down the dictator straight out of central casting. It had also been, for the most part, bloodless. Instead, in Syria, in the first three months of the demonstrations, not even for regime change but just for reforms, 1,000 Syrians were already dead and reportedly 10,000 in prison. Whereas in Egypt, the military had stepped in to stabilize the situation, arguably to protect its own vast economic interests. Instead, in Syria, the military was killing or being ordered to kill Syria's own people. As if that wasn't bad enough, the state media, TV, and newspapers continued to batter Syrians with an almost ludicrous version of what was happening in the country. Every day, we heard justifications for the brutal military crackdown. There was the proffer of evidence that the ongoing protests against the government were being orchestrated or infiltrated by foreign armed terrorists. We were being treated daily to alleged confessions by Syrians who had supposedly been paid to be terrorists, to bedside interviews with allegedly wounded Syrian soldiers, with zoomed-in shots of bloodstained sheets, to videos of alleged arms caches, to footage of alleged protesters, their weapons circled in red. Whether people actually believe these reports or not, the regime was cueing Syrians as to what the accepted narrative would be. This was made easier because, unlike in Egypt, in Syria the regime was not allowing in foreign journalists who might have been able to pursue the story without the consequences that would be unleashed on Syrian citizen journalists, never mind that there was no free press in Syria. Because the regime seemed to be fighting for domestic rather than international legitimacy, it didn't care if it looked like it had something to hide to the outside world. Unquote. That was Alia Malik writing in her memoir, The Home That Was Our Country. Her book is 
a lot more personal and less so historical than a lot of the sources I've been reading from, especially like Rania Abuzaid's No Turning Back, or especially Civil War in Syria, that dry textbook. But man, Ali Amak's a damn great writer. I mean, just reading it felt, just reading it out loud felt so different. And look, Civil War in Syria, look, Boxo, Doran Sorrow, the other guys who wrote it, it's got vital information in there. They did a fantastic job as historians. But Ali Malik can write. And as a Syrian writing about Syria, she speaks with a perspective that outside observers such as myself lack. In June of 2011, the protests are growing larger and larger, and the regime is feeling more and more insecure. We're seeing both an increase in violence, as well as a doubling down on the sectarian divide-and-conquer strategy that they've used so many times in the past. Bashar al-Assad and others know that if the Sunni majority can make common cause with Alawites, Druze, and other minorities, the regime is screwed. That's one of the reasons why the, the regime propaganda keeps mentioning extremist terrorists all the time. They're doing that to play on the minority's fears of extremist Sunni Muslims. Now, there are a small number of them out there, and we're going to get to them in a few minutes, but they don't represent the majority of Syrian Sunni Muslims. And on the opposing side, you see these normal Sunni Muslims trying over and over and over again to reach out to people from other, from other religious groups. I want to turn now to another quote from Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, we crossed a bridge and it trembled. And just a, a paragraph or two illustrating what I'm talking about. In this, Dr. Perlman is quoting Aziza, a school principal from Hama. Quote, My husband is from Homs and became a protest leader there. Violence was becoming intense in Homs, but they still had chants like, One, 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 the Syrian people are one. Wahed, 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 ashab asuri wahed. When the situation worsened, they chanted, O Alawites, we're your family. The house of Assad does not benefit you. The more people tried to address the issue of sectarianism, the more violent the regime became. It sent Shabiha to do house raids. They'd enter and kidnap young women in front of their parents. The men said they needed weapons to defend themselves. I urged against this. I said, they're trying to force you into killing which is what they want. I asked them, do you have tanks or planes? They have an army created to fight Israel. You don't stand a chance. They said, we have been patient. We've endured and we've endured, but they have ripped our women from our hands. How can we sit by and do nothing? Unquote. That was Dr. Wendy Perlman quoting Aziza, a school principal from Hama, in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. The question that I posed to you earlier, is staying peaceful the right choice, or is taking up arms the right choice? As we see in that quote, as May turns to June, there is an increasingly heated debate taking place within the Syrian opposition, and it's especially heated among those on the ground on the receiving end of the regime's violence. There are some who, who see what the regime is doing. They see the big picture. They realize that if they take up arms, that will play into the regime's hands. That's what they've been priming the public to believe with their propaganda. The moment they take up arms, boom, 
They're terrorists. See, we were right. See, the terrorists right there. All they got to do is get some footage, people holding weapons, and they can immediately spin that into, see, those are the terrorists we were telling you about. There are people who see that, but there are also people who disagree with them because they're the ones getting their doors kicked in at night. They're the ones whose wives, kids, other extended family are getting taken away or tortured or in some cases even raped right there while the family is forced to watch it happen. Perhaps you can see now why more and more people are giving up on staying nonviolent. There's something you often hear when you start learning about the armed opposition in Syria. It's And it's mostly true from what I've seen in my research. It's this idea that the Free Syrian Army originated from people taking up arms to protect protesters. There is some truth to that. But as we saw in another quote earlier, the people protecting protesters, especially in June, in early June 2011... These were people mostly with like rocks or sticks, you know, the kind of weapons that civilians can get their hands on pretty easily. But once you get into the home invasion territory, people realize that sticks and stones aren't going to be sufficient. And that's where you start to see an increase in people buying illegal guns. And these might be shotguns like the farmers in Dara own, or they could be AK-47s smuggled in from Iraq, which shares a border with Syria. You know, Iraq in 2011 is awash with black market weapons, thanks to multiple decades of war. When the regime propaganda talks about the idea of supposed terrorists hiding among the protesters or even directing the protests and engaging in these sneaky attacks against security forces or even civilians, when they paint that picture, they're oftentimes describing something that was seen pretty commonly during the Iraq War a few years before, especially like 2004-ish to 2008 or nine. So that was just a few years ago. It's pretty fresh in people's minds. That is how the Syrian regime paints that the opposition out. They don't want people to view the opposition as peaceful, unarmed protesters in the streets. They want people to, to hear about the opposition and immediately picture jihadists like Abu Masab al-Zarqawi. Up until about now, in early June, up until about now, that has been mostly false. That has mostly been bullshit, to be frank. But we are about to see something different, something we have not seen yet, at least as far as I could tell. Maybe I'm wrong. But up until now, as far as I've seen, I don't think there has been a literal pitched battle, whether in a conventional or asymmetric sense, between the regime and opposition. I have not seen a mention of like a full-on firefight where both sides are shooting at each other. I have not seen that up until now. Now we are going to talk about a place we haven't mentioned before on this podcast. It's a relatively small city in the northwestern Idlib province called Jisr al-Shagur. The protests started in major cities like Dara or Homs or Hama, but they've spread out to small villages and even small communities like Jisr al-Shagur, and so have the massacres of protesters. On Friday, June 3rd, Jisr al-Shagur was one of the places that saw a huge number of protesters. Keep in mind, Fridays are always the days where we see the most protests. According to a United Nations report, 30,000 protesters marched in Jisr al-Shagur on Friday, June 3rd. First, the security forces hit them with tear gas, 
Then they fired warning shots into the air, but at a certain point, whether deliberately or by accident, at least one man was killed, but he was later determined to have been armed when he was killed. That's not regime propaganda. That is according to multiple sources. However, a lot of people didn't know that he was armed, so when they heard that this guy, Basil al-Masri, had been killed, the assumption was, because of how often it was happening all over the country, the assumption was he had been murdered in the streets. Because let's be honest, that's been happening for months to lots and lots of people, so that's a very reasonable conclusion to come to. It was the following day during Basil al-Masri's funeral that a serious inflection point in this story took place. You know how we've been repeating over and over how you have these protests, people are killed at the protests, then you have funerals for the people who are killed, those funerals turn into protests. That's sort of what's about to happen, but that's not the main story. We turn again to Civil War in Syria by Baxo et al., as it is most commonly cited. Quote, On June 4, 2011, at Jasur al-Shigur, the Syrian army suffered its first setback, when members of the security forces opened fire on a funeral procession, the protesters looted a police station, armed themselves, and were quickly joined by deserters from a nearby military unit. The army responded with a sweep operation that provoked many more desertions. Soldiers refused to fire on civilians and swelled insurgent groups. By the end of the summer, with Jabal al-Zawiya in rebel hands, the regime military launched a major operation to retake it. Dozens of armored vehicles, backed by helicopters, moved against the insurgent areas. However, the rebels were able to retreat across the nearby Turkish border and wait out the end of the military's operation. Unquote. That was Boxo et al. writing in Civil War in Syria. Yeah, that's not a protest, that's a battle. Ladies and gentlemen, and other gender identities, I present to you the debut of The Rebels in Syria. So, who exactly are these rebels? Well, according to Rania Abuzaid, these guys weren't exactly the Free Syrian Army. They, that organization, that label doesn't exist yet. In, in the particular case of Jasser al-Shagur, while there are mentions of soldiers defecting from the army and protecting civilians, that did happen, at least in at least in other parts of Syria, if not in Jasur Shigur at some point. That probably did happen there at some point. But on June 4th in particular, the insurgents who took part in the fighting against the Syrian security forces, well, these guys actually were jihadists, at least according to Rania Abuzaid. The man who led the attack is somebody that she profiles in her book, No Turning Back. This guy is an extremist who was released in early 2011 by the regime for, as we've talked about before, tainting the opposition with violent extremists. Well, after months of smuggling guns and, and conducting reconnaissance, who goes by the name Mohammed, led his group's first offensive against the regime. Rania Abuzaid writes in her book, No Turning Back, quote, Mohammed was in his hometown of Jasur al-Shagur. He watched its peaceful protests, weekly events since mid-April, but did not participate. He had other plans. He enlisted a small group of Salafi friends from Latakia who, along with a few local men he'd armed, 
overran a half dozen small police stations in villages dotted around the city. The first raid was in mid-April, the same time as Jasser al-Shagur's first protest. Mohammed said he let the six policemen go and netted nine Kalashnikov rifles and ammunition. It wasn't hard. To the urban elites of the largely Sunni mercantile class that decades earlier had sided with the Muslim Brotherhood, the Makabarat state offered limited economic liberalization in exchange for loyalty, ensuring that the old elites were stakeholders in the survival of the new. Sect mattered less in this arrangement than politics and interests and making money, but only for those closest to the regime and others it wanted to woo. Family came first, and Bashar's maternal cousins, the Makloufs, became the richest and most powerful businessmen in Syria. With monopolies in telecommunications and other industries, former Defense Minister Mustafa Tlas's family wasn't far behind. It meant that classism, rather than sectarianism, was a stronger revolutionary driver for many of the regime's opponents, coupled with the long-harbored hatred of those whom it had harmed, just like the people of Jasser al-Shagur. Mohammed's men weren't the only armed men present. There were others from surrounding villages. A young, unarmed mourner named Faud saw groups of men grab guns from cars. He heard the first shots, but didn't know their source. He hid near the post office and watched security forces shoot unarmed protesters. A man he didn't recognize threw a Molotov cocktail through the wide double doors of the post office. Faud was a 25-year-old small business owner. His family, like many in Jusser al-Shagur, bore scars from the 1980s when his father and uncles were imprisoned for their ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. He hated the regime. The day Hafez al-Assad died was cause for a secret celebration in his home. Faud had protested every week since mid-April and took pride in his peaceful resistance. Crouched behind a car, he now watched gray smoke escape from the post office. A man who worked in a quarry to the north of the city propelled an incendiary device through the building's double doors. The explosion ignited a mighty fireball that belched thick smoke and shards of glass that clinked delicately as they showered the street. Men rushed into the building. Both Faud and Mohammed saw eight blackened bodies slumped in two rooms. As in the 1980s, helicopter gunships took to the skies over Jisr al-Shagur, emptying ammunition into people, bullets that split skulls. The state security and political security branches were within walking distance of the post office. The personnel there handed over their guns and were given safe passage by the armed men, who numbered a few hundred. Military security, however, refused to surrender. Some attackers hurled dynamite into the building. Others shot at it but missed, killing at least four people on their side. For God's sake, enough, someone yelled. But the armed men weren't done. A bulldozer rumbled toward the military security building, a barrel of explosives in its blade. The barrel detonated, paving the way for men to move inside. Unquote. Okay, that sounds a lot like a suicide bombing. Now back to the book. So Faud walks inside and he sees someone that he knows in the building that's being attacked. Quote, he was a customer at Faud's store, 
and pleaded with Foud to save him. How can I get you out? Foud asked him. It's either you or me. I will get in trouble for you. How can I do it? I have never hurt anyone, Foud remembered the soldier saying. Before Foud could respond, a man with a hunting rifle walked in, shot the soldier in the head, and walked out. Foud ran out of the building, screaming. He hated the regime, but these armed men and their actions did not represent him. He went home, bundled up his mother and younger siblings, and headed straight to the Turkish border. The sons were exacting revenge for crimes against their fathers and grandfathers, he thought, but he knew it would not end there. The regime sent 120 reinforcements who were intercepted and killed by armed groups before they reached Jisr al-Shagur. Assad's dead in the military security branch were buried in mass graves. The armed men, including Mohammed's group, knew what was happening and set the narrative. They had just provoked the first major armed insurrection of the Syrian uprising, an inconvenient truth that played into the regime's line that it faced armed opponents, not peaceful protesters like Foud. And so, a story about a mutiny was devised. The next morning, a Makdam, Arabic for colonel or lieutenant colonel, sat cross-legged in the damp soil, wearing a borrowed plaid short-sleeved shirt and pale green trousers. He said his name was Hussein Harmush, and he produced a laminated military ID card. He was the highest-ranking defector to date, a 22-year military veteran. He split from the 11th Armored Division of the Syrian Army's 3rd Corps. He said he burnt his uniform in disgust, starting with the rank designated on his opulets, then the rest of it. He struggled to speak. Men gathered to listen. After a long pause and many deep breaths, the Makdam with the thinning salt and pepper hair said he defected from Homs on June 3rd, 2011, with 30 of his men, and was joined by other defectors who arrived in Jisr al-Shagur after June 5th to defend civilians from loyalist troops. Within weeks, Harmush formed the Free Officers Movement, which called on the Syrian military to back the people, not the Assad government. It was the precursor to the Free Syrian Army. The contrivance about a mutiny worked. There was no mass defection, yet the story was repeated dozens of times by wounded men evacuated to hospitals in the southern Turkish town of Antakya, and by some families in the fields. Some men even admitted that they'd shot at regime soldiers, but insisted there was also a mutiny. Farmers spoke of seeing soldiers shoot other soldiers. Even the regime described men in, quote, stolen military uniforms, unquote, shooting their soldiers. Human rights organizations carried the witness testimonies, and I, along with the rest of the world's media, reported the claims. We invented the stories about the defections. Mohammed told me much later, a claim admitted by others. We made a liar out of Hussein Harmoush. We had to explain how the regime men were killed. Unquote. That was Rania Abu Zaid writing in her book, No Turning Back. So there's a lot to unpack from that quote. And there are some other sources that would frankly disagree with some of the things Abu Zaid wrote. So yeah, Hussein Harmoush, he was a high-ranking defector. And 
weeks after he claimed to have formed an organization called the Free Officers Movement, he was captured in Turkey by Syrian intelligence. The Free Officers Movement does appear to have been mostly a front organization, doesn't really appear to have done much on their own. Would not be fair, though, to say the same of the Free Syrian Army. That phenomenon will become a viable entity in of itself. They were not merely a front for jihadists like the Free Officers Movement. David Lesh paints a broader picture of what happened in Jusser al-Shagur in his book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. Quote, the city, the city had a history with the Assads. In 1980, the government carried out a brutal crackdown there that presaged the events of a couple years later in Hama, another conservative Sunni city. Violence now broke out on June 6, 2011, with government forces entering the city. According to Syrian state reports, 120 security personnel were killed by armed gangs the largest death toll to date in any single theater of combat in the uprising. Opposition websites contended that the 120 security personnel had actually been killed by their own when they threatened to, or actually did, defect to the opposition. This is but one example of the diametrically opposed narratives offered on the same incident by two sides, which were attempting to spin the story to their own advantage. Perhaps more importantly in the long term, the action taken along the Turkish border by Syrian forces, which were probably attempting to prevent any safe zones from developing, not only greatly boosted the flow of Syrian refugees into southern Turkey, but also hastened Turkish involvement in the crisis and increased pressure on Ankara's erstwhile friend Bashar al-Assad to really implement the reforms that had been announced. The Syrian government's failure to do so, the increasing violence, and the associated flood of refugees to Red Crescent camps in Turkey, approximately 10,000 by mid-June, would eventually alienate one of Syria's most important regional friends. Jusser al-Shagur had been virtually emptied, with most of the residents fleeing to or across the Turkish border. There were reports that Syrian artillery actually shelled some of the refugee camps inside Turkey. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. So this first battle was not a clear victory for the opposition, but they did inflict an unprecedented amount of casualties upon the regime. This is the first documented instance of legitimate combat, of a gunfight taking place between between soldiers and Shabiha militias versus armed opposition. I want to take a moment to ask one more question. In this situation, during the eight days where fighting took place in Jisr al-Shagur, especially those first few days where you had protesters being shot, then security forces got ambushed and killed, I want you to consider... Who was the bad guy in that situation? Was it the regime that's been massacring people almost every day for three months? Was it the people who decided they'd had enough that peaceful protest wouldn't work anymore? 
Or was it people like Muhammad who never believed in peaceful protest, who nihilistically concluded that armed struggle was both inevitable and necessary? Or maybe the situation is simply more complicated than good guy versus bad guy. Maybe we're talking about multiple factions in which some individuals, like the Shabiha militias, are unabashedly loathsome, just terrible people who do terrible things like rape and torture and mass murder. But something similar could be said about jihadists who wanted to kill lots of people. We'll see more of that in the near future. And meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, you have conscripted soldiers who are there simply because they were ordered to show up. Of course, if they do obey orders to fire at crowds, they can't simply say they were just following orders. We all know that's not an excuse for committing war crimes. There is such a thing as a lawful versus unlawful order. Unfortunately, in Syria, you don't have the right to say no to an unlawful order. You'll be tortured or killed for refusing to murder people. So I don't mean to completely both sides this. I don't mean to completely defend the soldiers for all of the atrocities they committed, but I think we we can make a distinction between the open psychopaths like the Shabiha militias and the Makabarat versus the brutalized professionals in the Syrian Arab army. And on the opposition side, you have not only extremists like Muhammad, you also have locals who most of the time they just want to defend their neighborhoods. The popular image of the Free Syrian Army, or at least the people who became the Free Syrian Army, the popular image of them taking up arms to protect protesters, that is true. But more often than not, they took up arms to protect their families and their neighborhoods. They were expecting the military to go house to house, room by room, killing people and ravaging the city not only because they had a history of doing that going back to 1982, but also because they had, they were doing that at that moment to Dara. And they were starting to do it to other cities. More and more people, especially after what happened to Hamza Ali al-Khatib, have given up on peacefully opposing this vile regime. And can you really blame them? What we see now at the end of this episode are the very beginnings of armed opposition in Syria. For more on this, specifically on military personnel defecting to the opposition side, we turn again to We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled by Dr. Wendy Perlman. Here she quotes a former military officer named Khalil from Deir Zor. Quote, I was a colonel serving in the 4th Brigade and we were sent to put down demonstrations in Daraya and Modamia. The commanders told us that we were fighting armed gangs. I knew this was false, but these were military orders, and you don't debate military orders. For the first two weeks, we used batons, and Air Force intelligence officers and snipers would shoot from behind us. By the third week, they gave us orders to open fire at the protesters' legs. If they approached within 200 meters, we were supposed to shoot to kill. The first time I saw a protest was like ecstasy. Inside, I was thrilled. But I also witnessed with my own eyes how the army was full of rage and resentment. 
I remember going to raid the house of someone accused of funding protests. The officers hit the man. When his wife tried to intervene, they hit her too. Then they hit their little girl so hard that she was thrown against the wall. My heart was with the people from the beginning, but if the army knew you were going to defect, they would kill you. Before I could defect, I needed to ensure the safety of my wife and children. Once I was able to do that, I fabricated a scenario to make it look like I'd been kidnapped. Then I disappeared. For a while, it wasn't clear to the army if I'd been captured or actually defected. During that time, they arrested my father and brother. They released my dad after a few days, but they held my brother longer. Then the regime came to my house in Damascus. They stole what they could and burned the rest. They did the same thing to my family home in Derazor. I'm not crying over the loss of the houses. The point is, I have nowhere to go back to, unquote. That was Khalil, a former Syrian military officer turned rebel commander from Derazor, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. It's pretty common for Western commentators to make this sort of false distinction between 2011 and 2012. They'll describe 2011 as the civil uprising phase of the Syrian civil war, as they call it. And then 2012 is the year that the fighting started. That's how it's often described, but that's really not accurate. What we see in 2011 is a gradual transition or evolution. At this stage, armed conflict in terms of opposition to the regime, only a minority of it is armed. Only a minority of it looks like what's going on in Jasser al-Shigur. What's more common is tens of thousands of people taking to the streets continuing to protest despite being killed in the streets or arrested and tortured to death. So how do we how do we make sense of the violent and nonviolent forms of opposition taking place all at the same time in different parts of Syria? I want to turn again to Dr. Samir Anaboud's book Syria. He's got a there, there's a paragraph in here that I think will really I think it really explains this very well. Quote the militarization of the Syrian uprising can be attributed to two main factors. First, the sustained and brutal violence inflicted on protesters by the regime and its armed proxies, which encouraged Syrians to take up arms. And second, the failure of the protests to initiate a political transition process, such as that, was, such as that which occurred in Tunisia and Egypt. The initial Protesters were strongly committed to nonviolence as a political strategy, but in the months following the uprising, this strategy was put under tremendous strain as some in the external opposition began advocating for international intervention and, and the creation of an armed wing. As these debates were ongoing within opposition circles, groups of army defectors began forming in their respective locales and began confronting regime forces with violence. Eventually, during the summer of 2011, these groups would coalesce under the banner of the Free Syrian Army, or FSA, and would form the core of the militarized opposition. In 2012 and 2013, the FSA was heralded by some as an army-in-waiting, 
as the force that would both topple the regime and secure stability in the aftermath. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir Enabud writing in his book, Syria. Now, as we would see in the years, in the years following 2011, that's not exactly what the FSA was. That's not exactly what played out. But we are about to see the origins and rise of the FSA in the episodes following this one very soon. Again, I have to emphasize, we are not seeing the end of the protesting phase or the beginning of the armed conflict phase. These were, these were simultaneous phenomena. A majority of Syrians still, in June of 2011, are more likely to engage in peaceful protest than, than take up arms against the regime. But an increasing number of people, still a minority, but growing larger and larger day by day, have decided that they're done politely asking Bashar al-Assad to step down or implement some reforms. They've decided to take him down by force. This was, bar none, the most horrific episode we've done thus far. I actually cut out a segment describing more of the torture and some of the rape that was taking place in Syrian prisons in 2011, just because I personally hit my limit when it comes to horror and human suffering. I'll use those quotes in a future episode, because frankly, anybody who's made it this far deserves a break. If, if you If you have listened to this podcast in its entirety... Thank you, and please go outside and hug your family. Do something positive, because damn, this episode's going to bring your mood down. It it affected me. Just reading horror after horror after horror. It I'm not I'm not I don't want to put myself on the same level as like somebody who experienced it. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying they're equivalent, but it wasn't easy to make this episode. It wasn't easy to do the research. It wasn't easy to record this. And I'm sure it's going to be hard listening to it again while I edit it. I have no doubt about that. I did the best I could to examine all the gruesome details in a clinical manner. But yeah, this episode pretty much broke me. You can probably hear it in my voice when I read Alia Malek's quote about discovering what happened to Hamza Ali al-Khatib. I mean, this is an exceptionally disturbing episode. But I wanted to just throw you into the horrors because people in Syria did not have the option to look away from it, even if they wanted to. That was the reality for people in 2011. Every single development of what Western observers call the Syrian Civil War from 2011 to 2021, they all need to be looked at with the context of what the regime perpetrated against Hamza and an unbelievable number of other children. Children. Children being tortured, sometimes to death, 
holy fuck, it doesn't get more evil than that. You know, we sometimes have people who actually are from Syria, people who live through these events, listen to these episodes. They'll even occasionally reach out. And I'm extremely grateful for some of the feedback they've given us. The one thing that they all have in common is that they're surprised when they hear things on this show that they don't hear about anywhere else, at least in English. There's probably a ton of great Arabic language podcasts out there talking about events in Syria since 2011, but English-speaking audiences don't get exposed to that content. Most of them never learn the facts that we try to lay out. And that has the effect of Assad regime propaganda gaining probably a greater foothold in English-language media than it does in its Arabic counterparts. That is why too many people all around the world can be found in every group ranging from the far right to the far left and everything in between. Too many people put too much stock into conspiracy theories, equivocation, and prejudice when it comes to Syria. Too many people look at the superficial coverage that they see in the media of Syria. And they see, oh, a government fighting armed insurgents. That sounds familiar. And as a result, people are oftentimes more inclined to support the government than the group that are being described as terrorists. That's how, we're, that's how we are primed to think, given our recent history. But while it's easy to criticize the opposition for riots and for this occasional killings of security personnel, it's easy to criticize that, and there are cases where they were clearly acting in revenge rather than self-defense. But honestly, given the violence that the regime had perpetrated against them for months with impunity, one has to ask this question. Who the hell wouldn't respond violently if faced with the kind of violence that results in children being tortured and mutilated to death? How do you stay peacefully opposed to that? especially when the regime shows up in your neighborhood coming for your kids. Would you stay peaceful in that situation? Sure, you'd probably run away if you had the chance. Most people would. But what about when escape isn't an option? When your back is against the wall and the Shabiha are on your doorstep? In that case, it is sometimes kill or be killed. And for those who survive such situations, people who had to kill in order to protect themselves and their families. It's not too much of a step from there to start preemptively killing in order to never, ever let that happen again. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our 11th episode, The Last Straw. Follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can also email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. That's the title of the podcast with the word podcast in there at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us. Oh, and don't forget, don't put the question mark in the email address. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you happen to be Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, 
please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can also get bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan requested content and a shout out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePazzo and Evan Kennedy. Let's get some more names on there. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week. Yeah, I'm a 